0: Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and as Shaka just mentioned in his prayer, turn to Titus chapter 3 for the final installment in this little summer series through a wonderful letter. We're going to be in chapter 3 of Titus, picking up in verse 8 where Matt Givens left off last week and then carrying on through verse 15 uh, of of the letter. Uh, While you're turning over to Titus, I want to take this opportunity to give you a little preview of what you can expect starting next week. So next week... And then carrying on through most of the rest of this year, we're going to enter into a series in the book of Acts. We're going to pick up in that book at the 10th chapter where the gospel t- moves from Jerusalem and Judea and its Jewish origins to the Gentiles and, 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 and through them to, to as, as far as, as, as the world stretched in that, in that ancient imagination. Jesus said to the ends of the earth, and they got, they got a long ways. What we'll see through, uh, through Acts is... Is the gospel going to the boundaries of the Roman Empire? Um, we'll see them spreading not just through Samaria next door, and and not even just to, to to Greece and Rome, but but even farther. And and this spread not only fulfills the commission Jesus gave them, but engages the church in all sorts of conversations about who they are and what it means to follow Jesus that we'll get to track with step by step. It, it raised all sorts of problems that they had to solve and new opportunities they had to figure out how to address. And along the way, watching them do this chapter by chapter, we'll get the help that we need for, for holding out this same gospel to the ends of the earth today as we've been called to do. Bill Heerman is going to get us started with that series next week, and then we will be off to the races throughout Acts for the rest of the year. All that said, we've got some unfinished business here in Titus for this morning. So hopefully you've found Titus chapter 3 and and the last few verses of this chapter. Um, What we said at the very beginning of this series, I'll say again now to set up our time together this morning. We turned to Titus in the the middle of a really important year in the life of our church—a year of transition for us, as we, uh, as two churches early in this year became one church, and as we now face a new life together. Uh, we thought, what better way to spend the first year than talking a lot about what a local church is, about what gospel holds us together and gives us the unity that. that that we've been called to, uh, about how that church's life together is supposed to be shaped and structured, and and then next in the series in Acts about what we're called to do in the world uh, through our life together. Uh, We chose Titus because this is Paul handing over to one of his disciples the responsibility for leading local churches in the island of Crete. It's Paul giving him something like a manual for how to do that putting on his radar the things he would need to know to lead the church in a healthy direction. And one of the main themes throughout this letter has been that, that the gospel that saves us also shapes how we live. We talked early on in the letter of, about the, the temptation to bobblehead Christianity where all you do is, is talk about ideas. All you do is have is is have sermons and talks and conversations that put more and more thinking into your brain, but that never translate into a a healthy body, into a holistic approach to the world that's based on who Jesus is and what he's done. And, And Paul wrote this letter in part to help Titus help other Christians know the difference it makes to be with Jesus, so that their lives look different than they would apart from him. We've been tracking that theme all through the letter, and it's a theme that Paul chooses to end his letter with in the verses we'll consider this morning. The final command that he gives to to Titus to pass on to the churches in Crete is a command to devote themselves to good work so that they can help in cases of urgent need, this is verse 14, and not be unfruitful. Paul sums up the letter with the main driving concern of the letter all throughout, that this community be fruitful. He imagines the church here as a fruit-bearing plant. He wants them, and and wants us, to bear a lot of fruit. Think of this letter, in other words, as an act of gardening, as as a skill passed on from one master gardener to his apprentice to make sure that Titus will know what he needs to know in order to keep cultivating fruit-bearing plants. I've been thinking a lot about peaches this week as I've read this text. And as I've eaten a lot of peaches in a lot of different contexts, this is maybe my favorite time of year because of the number of peaches that are available. I love them. I mean, can we all just agree that they're the best fruit? Is that, is that an easy thing to agree on? That peaches are the greatest of all? Thank you, Eric Patton. Peaches are the greatest of all fruits. Uh, there is really no context in which they're unwelcome that I can think of. I mean, I love peaches in the jam format. I love them inside of ice cream and on top of ice cream. I love them in cobbler. I love them on top of cereal. I love them on pound cake. I love to eat them in snacks. We've even figured out how to make good sandwiches out of peaches. And I'll be happy to share with you that little hack that we've come up with uh, after the service if you're interested. I used to complain a lot about how expensive it is to get good peaches here in Music City. I don't complain as much about that once I realized how much is involved in cultivating a healthy peach tree. I grew up with an amazing blueberry bush, or blueberry tree out in our backyard. It, it long predated our families moving into this house, and it's still going strong even today. Uh, but it was basically hands-free. Until it was time to pick the berries, you didn't do anything other than scare away the mockingbirds and, and wait, wondering whether or not it was too soon to start harvesting them. Peach trees aren't like that. They take some finesse. you got to be careful to fertilize them and water them and prune them. You have to insist on this or they won't have the nutrients they need to thrive. But then on the other hand, peach trees need a lot of protection too. They're vulnerable. You're supposed to spray regularly to ward off the bugs that could take them down. You're supposed to be, I just read this this week, I didn't know that. You're supposed to even pull weeds and grass from around the base of the peach tree because I guess they're so fragile if there's grass and weeds down there that the water the peach trees need will get sucked up by these weeds and by these grasses, and they won't have what they need to thrive. You're even supposed to prune back some of the fruit before it matures so that the other peaches get what they need to thrive. You choose some to the detriment of others just to make sure that this peach tree thrives in the way you want it to. It's, it's, it's super particular. And in a similar way to a peach tree, at least based on what Paul is saying here, for a local church to thrive, for it to be the kind of fruit-bearing plant that Paul wants it to be, you've got to be really careful that you're insisting on some things and weeding out others. That you're, that you're offering the nutrients the tree needs to thrive and to bear fruit, that you're pulling away its competition. And I think that these last few verses, one, one good way to understand them, is of Paul passing on some final gardening tips to his apprentice gardener, telling him what to do and what not to do. Or rather, what to insist on and what to avoid. If you want this community to be fruit-bearing, if you want the gospel that saves us to work all the way down into us so that it shapes us, and here's what you need to do and here's what you need not to do. I want to just show you three tips that Paul gives to Titus to insist on in the churches. One thing to do, two things not to do. If you want to be a fruitful community, and I want to begin by just reading these, these several verses together. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to pick up in verse 8 where Matt left off uh, last week. I'm going to read to the end of the letter in verse 15. This is God's word to us. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. You can be seated. I hope you notice as I was reading this emphasis on good works. At the very beginning, make sure they devote themselves to good works. At the very end, let them learn how to devote themselves to good works. Don't let them be unfruitful. So if we're going to have a community that bears fruit, what do we need? Three things this morning. Here's number one. Always insist on the gospel. Gardening tip number one for cultivating a fruit-bearing plant in the local church is always insist on the gospel. I mentioned already that Paul's final command in verse 14 is that we learn to devote ourselves to good works. That, that, that God's people be ready to meet any need that comes up. That they're just looking for a chance to serve. You know, they see somebody in need who doesn't have what they need. They're on it. You don't have to tell them they want to be. It makes their day to be. That's what he, that's what he has in mind as, a, as, as a, uh, uh, the fruit that he wants us to be bearing. People who are selfless, who are devoted to others, who are looking for a chance to reflect God's love to us in Jesus But for our first point this morning, I want you to see one crucial connection. I want you to look at how this last command in verse 14 echoes the words of verse 8, which Matt showed us last week. So verse 14 says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help in urgent need. Jump back up to verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. Intentional echo. But in verse 8, do you notice he's telling us where these good works come from? If we want good works, then we've got to insist on the gospel. You see that in verse 8? If you want to be a fruitful community known for love that's active and costly and beautiful, the kind of love that Paul calls them to in verse 12 and 13, then if you want to be a people devoted to good works like this, if that's what you want, then you've got to insist on these things, this trustworthy saying. What Paul means in verse 8, what he's talking about is what he said in verses 3 through 7. One of the clearest and most beautiful summaries of the gospel that you'll find anywhere. Keep on teaching these things, he says to Titus. This teaching, he says, is profitable, verse 8. It's excellent. So, So just to reset again. This letter has been about the practical difference that Jesus makes to our lives. But right here at the end of it, I think Paul is implicitly warning us against just aiming at practical life change for its own sake. You don't get to life change by focusing first on behavior, on recognizing the things you wish were different about yourself and then just hunkering down to make the changes that you want to see. If you start there, you won't see real change. That'd be like me wanting a fruitful peach tree in my backyard, buying a couple of bags from the peach truck and tie them on one by one to the branches of my maple tree. For a minute, I'll have a tree full of peaches but that isn't genuine or lasting fruit. That has nothing to do with the nature of that tree. If I want sustainable fruit, if I want a peach tree that produces year after year, over and over, peach after peach, then what I need is not just peaches, but a peach tree, one that's well watered, one that's well fertilized, one that's well pruned. I can't just start with the fruit I want. I have to start with the health of the tree that I want to see producing fruit. And Paul is saying here, that he wants them to be a fruitful community where what they know about God affects how they live before God. And to get there, he said up in verse 8, you got to insist on these things over and over and over. That's the cause and effect relationship that, that, that gets the job done. That looks like focus on the content of the gospel relentlessly, without apology, and without ever giving it up. See, see friends, without the gospel, my attempt to improve my life, to to be more fruitful, is just gonna end up depending on the same thing that made a mess of my life in the first place. My attempt is just gonna end up depending on me. I'll still be at the center of everything, deciding for myself what's best next. And ultimately, not only will I love me most, I'll trust me most. My grit, my discipline, my determination to follow through on whatever changes I wanna see. In other words, I'll still be driven in everything by pride. The same pride that made a mess of my life in the first place. The same pride that produces rotten fruit year after year after year. My pride has to die for me to start bearing fruit as a Christian. And the news of the gospel, the news of verses 3 to 7 in Titus chapter 3, is like this neon flashing sign and blaring loud speakers that just, that just scream at us over and over Enough already! Enough already with you! Look around and see where this self-reliance ends up. This is verse 3. Here's where self-reliance put me. I was once foolish, disobedient. I was led astray, enslaved to various passions and pleasures. I was passing my days in malice and envy. I was hated by others, and I hated others. That's where self-reliance ends up. That's the fruit produced when I'm at the center of my love and my trust. Enough already! Enough already! But friends, this, this focus on sin, this verse three reminder is never just meant to make us hate ourselves. It isn't meant to that, for that at all. It's, it's meant to protect us from trusting ourselves. It's not meant to, to, to ruin our self-esteem. It's meant to give us the only foundation that there is for a self that honors God, that's good for us and good for our neighbors. You won't find it anywhere else. It's a means to an end. It's to protect us from trusting ourselves and to wean us. And our focus off of, off of me and, and to recenter that focus onto God and His grace that came all the way down to meet me and that promises to carry me all the way into eternity. Look at verses 4 through 7. When I was in this pit I dug for myself, that's when God's goodness and loving kindness appeared. It's Him that saves us, not we ourselves. Our being saved is according to His mercy, Paul says. It's not because of anything righteous that we've done to earn it. And it's His Holy Spirit, Paul continues, verse 5, that washes us and renews us, that makes us new and clean. It's not our grit or our discipline or our willpower. And it's His grace that makes us heirs of this new world that He's promised. It's His grace that justifies us so that we get the hope of eternal life. It's Him from beginning to end. It's all from Him. Think about our changed lives, the changed lives that are the the goal of this letter, the changed lives that will make us a fruitful community. I want you to think about those changed lives as as an equation where humility plus hope equals holiness. And the news of the gospel holds the key to all of it. Humility plus hope leads to holiness. So when Paul says, remind them of these things, insist on these things. He's saying, remind them where they were before God's grace rescued them. This will kill their pride. And then remind them that God's grace came all the way down to meet them and will carry them all the way home. This will give them hope. And humility plus hope will lead to holiness. This gospel, this reminder of where we were takes us out of the center of our world as if everything and everyone around us exists for us. And it puts me in the center of God's love where his grace and his power to take sinners like me and make them holy and happy like him is all that matters where it does all the work. This gospel takes our focus off of padding our resumes and stockpiling for our futures and puts our focus squarely on other people because we have nothing to gain and nothing to lose apart from what God has already promised us. So we're free to just, to just give and give and give. How do you get to be fruitful? Verse 14. Where do these good works come from? Only, verse 8, if you insist on the gospel. So friends, let's be a church church that just doesn't get tired of coming back to this well week after week, day after day, conversation after conversation. Let's insist on these things for one another over and over and over. And let's see what fruit God bears in us when we do. If you want to be a fruitful community, as we do, first thing to do is to insist on the gospel always. Then immediately after, Paul tells Titus to insist on the gospel, he shifts his focus. He tells Titus what to avoid if this church is to be a fruitful community. So here's the second gardening tip for us this morning. If we want to be a fruitful community, as I know we do, we'll not only have to insist on the gospel, we will secondly have to avoid divisions that don't involve the gospel. Insist on the gospel always. But avoid divisions that don't involve the gospel. Look with me back at our text. So verse verse 8, here Paul says, insist on these things. This is how how those who believed in God will be careful to devote themselves to good work. This gospel, it's excellent. It is profitable for people. But, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable. The gospel, it's profitable. All these divisions, unprofitable, worthless. You see the parallel here? What does Paul have in mind? What is this divisiveness that's on his mind, and how can we avoid it? I I believe what, what Paul has in mind is not just these specific four examples that he lists here. But really, any controversial issue that doesn't involve the details of the gospel. Yeah, the four things that he mentions do matter. And I want to walk you through each one so you can see what he had in mind with them. But I think that the main theme here is just avoiding divisiveness. Our tendency to fight about things that that just don't matter. So foolish controversies, the first one in Paul's list... It has to do with subjects that are ultimately frivolous. That's where the word foolish, that's the, the weight that the word foolish carries. It's, uh, a controversy can be a good one. It can really matter. Sometimes that's important, as we'll say more about here in a minute. But, but Paul has in mind just weightless, unimportant, distracting kind of controversies. You know, uh, medieval theologians get a bad rap for arguing about how many angels could fit on the pin of a needle. To whatever extent they actually spent their time on that question, I guess they deserved that bad rap. It just doesn't matter. Who cares? Going down that rabbit hole is foolish. That's what Paul has in mind. It isn't quite as clear what Paul has in mind with genealogies, but it's also not really that hard to imagine what he may have had in mind, what, what may have been going on in this early community. I mean, genealogy really mattered in the Old Testament. It mattered who came from Abraham's line. It mattered who would sit on the throne of David. It mattered so much that... Some of the stories about Jesus, two of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, start with where Jesus came from, his genealogies. Genealogy mattered. And so it, because it mattered, it's not hard to imagine some of the early Christians maybe trying to figure out their own genealogy. You know, one of these Ancestry.com kind of, kind of searches that see, just who do you trace back to? And, and, and maybe even arranging themselves in a kind of hierarchy based on who your great, 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 great grandpappy was it's not hard to imagine them going down a rabbit hole like that when Paul says, no, doesn't matter. It's ridiculous. It's worthless speculation. Avoid it. And Paul doesn't, spec- doesn't specify what the dissensions were that he has in mind or the specific quarrels about the law that were going on in Crete. But again, I think the, the point is still clear enough. Yes, the law matters. It matters enough that Paul spent a lot of his time studying and writing about it. But quarrels about the law? In the light of the gospel, it's just not worth it. Friends, Paul was he was passionate about truth. He's just finished telling Titus to insist on the truths of the gospel. It it matters to him. He spent his life studying and then teaching to others content like this. And he was bold, even when his life depended on, on this content, even when it cost him his life to insist on this gospel, he stood tall. He's written letters defending the truth. And you read Galatians if you want to see just how seriously he took theological warfare when he had to. Sometimes division is necessary, and we, we should be ready to divide if we have to. But, but... As one guy put it, just as we wouldn't take seriously a doctor who never considered surgery, we also shouldn't take seriously a doctor who only ever considered surgery. Oh, you stubbed your toe on that chair? Here, let me just cut that off for you. Your sinus is a little clogged. I know exactly how we can open those up. Scalpel, please. In the right situation, surgery saves lives, but in almost every situation in human human, uh, medical care, like cutting something off or cutting someone open is going to be a disaster. It's just going to make things worse. It'll cause pain and maybe infection or just, you know, you'll miss that toe. It would have, it would have healed. And I think Paul is trying to say here in this verse that, that just, just like in medical care in the local church, almost always division is going to make things worse, not better. And unfortunately right now, friends, I think surgeons are having a moment. I don't mean the real ones. I mean like the Twitter version of a surgeon, the tr- Christian Twitter version. I, I recently read a, a wizened older theologian reflecting on the tendencies of younger thinkers and writers and teachers, uh, I think some, some reflections that apply pretty well to a lot of people in general, uh, not just to writers and theologians. He was talking about the tendency of the young to imagine themselves as the next Martin Luther or Martin Luther King Jr., as a hero Standing tall for truth or against injustice when the stakes are high and the need of the moment and the need of the hour calls for great strength and courage. The young like to imagine themselves as Martin Luther or MLK in the same way little boys imagine themselves as Patrick Mahomes or Steph Curry or Mike Trout, this guy said. When these boys grow up, when they're too big to play cops and robbers out in the yard, this, this theologian said, they, they just change their game to playing Luther and the Pope. And when the real Pope won't come out and play with you, you you pick on somebody else and say, you're it. Now, obviously, he's playing this up for a little comedic effect, but I think he's on to something. I think he's on to something. James James chapter 3 says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder. And James says that that's not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. In the name of biblical truth, we can do the devil's bidding, in other words. We can follow the unspiritual and fleshly and self-exalting agenda the evil one has for our churches. Friends, that's not courage. That doesn't come from the conviction and courage of Jesus. That comes from pride. If we're itching for our chance not to compromise the chances are that's, that's not coming from the courage and conviction of Jesus, but from our self-worshipping tendency in our hearts. Yeah, Jesus turned tables over when he had to. But on Jesus' final night, he spent his time praying for the unity of his people. And then he went and died to make that unity possible. And Paul is warning us here that there is more than one way to compromise the faith. We could compromise it by adapting the core of the gospel or by neglecting the truths that we've been told to insist on because other people might not like them. But we also compromise our faith when we divide from each other based on issues that don't affect the gospel. That's a compromise too. For Christians, following the lead of our Savior, unity is beautiful to us. And that means the work of peacemaking is Precious to us. Listen to Paul. I just want these verses to wash over you for a minute. Listen to how often Paul goes here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort From love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What manner is worthy of that calling? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I hope if you're a member of Edgefield, that line right there sounds familiar to you. It's It's the basis for the first line in our covenant of promises to one another. We will divide when we have to, but we will work at unity. If it comes to it, we'll divide. If the gospel is at stake and and, and at risk of being compromised, we will draw lines. But we'll work at unity. That will be our focus. We will take up the calling to be peacemakers. Listen to a few more references. Listen to how often the New Testament goes here. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. They're the ones who bear the family resemblance. The peacemakers. Listen to Paul again, Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Hebrews 12, listen to this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you see it, guys? The priority is peace. And even though we ought to be willing to divide if we have to, for Christians, that should always feel like death. And we shouldn't look like we've come to a party but to a funeral because our hearts belong to the peace of Christ. So let's encourage each other to put our best energy into the work of unity and peace. Have you noticed how often it's controversy that draws us in? It's the contested stuff that fills our minds, that fills our feeds, that that fills our conversations. Let's just just not do that. Let's put our best energy into the work of peace. And that'll mean keeping our focus relentlessly on Christ to insist on the truths of the gospel. that should make us not just willing but eager to set aside our opinions and our preferences when they clash with one another for the chance to focus together on Jesus Friends, I just want to take a minute here to thank you. Uh, To thank you at the end of a hard year, maybe a year and a half now, for the evidence you've given me that you took that promise seriously. When when the COVID-19 pandemic first began to hit us, uh, it didn't take long to recognize this was going to be a threat to unity. I remember us praying about that often, talking about it wherever we had the chance to. And appealing to one another, friends, oh, let's just, let's not let this bring us down. This can't be worth it. We try to always say, like, the issues involved, they really matter. The health of vulnerable people is at stake. Public health matters. Personal liberties matter, too. The stakes are high here. And we will take these issues seriously. But the reality is, we, we didn't see it the same way. In all the particulars. And many of you had, had policies and procedures imposed on you that you didn't have a say in. And those of us who were involved in making those decisions did our best to be as clear as we could be about where we were coming from and whose expert guidance we were following. But at the end of the day, like, you showed up to a, a, a set of circumstances you didn't ask for. And I know from conversations with lots of you that that wasn't easy to do for different reasons from different angles. For some of you, you accepted regulations you didn't think were necessary. For others of you, you you showed up even though it felt like a risk to you to do so. And at every step, what I've noticed most and what makes me so grateful for you is I saw you working hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I'm so grateful. Thanks be to God and thank you to you for putting this into practice in a hard year. Look, he, he's gotten us through it, hasn't he? Praise the Lord for that. And we're still together. Let's don't give up what's been so hard to maintain, but, but double down on our efforts to make sure nothing else can divide us either. Now, I want to, I m- with the, the last few minutes here, move to one more gardening tip. Very closely connected to the one we've just considered. We've just talked about avoiding Divisions that have nothing to do with the gospel. But Paul saves his most direct and sharpest words for verse 10 and tip number three. We'll also have to avoid people who stir up division. Look back with me at verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. If there's a person stirring up division, Paul says, warn him. If that doesn't stop him from doing what he's doing, warn him again. And if he still continues to stir up division, then you have nothing more to do with him. You disassociate with him. Division from a divider, Paul says, is crucial for the community to bear fruit. The divider is sucking away precious time and energy and attention that that belong on the calling of God to do good works. This person, Paul says, is warped and sinful. In other words, it's it's too far gone if they don't respond to the warnings. You can't keep reasoning with someone who doesn't want to be reasoned with. If the conversation's not moving anywhere, better to focus that time and energy and attention on the fruit that's still there, making sure it has the nutrients that it needs rather than chasing down these divisions that the divider has a vested interest in perpetuating over and over and over. Don't do it. That just makes things worse. Paul, here's what I think Paul is getting at. I think he's describing here a scenario that's very similar to one he describes in 1 Corinthians 5. And to a scenario that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 18. In both of these places in the New Testament, a member of the church continues to live in a way that opposes what Jesus has said. And and their choice to continue living in a way that that isn't consistent with, with, with what Jesus has called them to threatens the community. And so in both those cases, just as here, Jesus and Paul calling us to separate from that person. It's because you love them that you want to shake them awake. Separating from them is meant to kind of grab them by the shoulders and wake them up, wake up. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see the danger that you're in? Separating is how you don't enable them in their sin by acting like everything's fine here, nothing to see here, this is cool. I mean, of course, guys, you can't, don't, think, don't, don't see this and think control. You, you can't control a person. You can't stop them from dividing if they choose to divide. They have to make their own choices, but you can control whether you endorse them as part of your life together. You can say, no, not here. We won't do it, not until you stop. And Paul's, I think he's saying here that you owe it to them if you love them. You owe it to the community too. A person who stirs up division like this is like a poison in the body. It's like a gangrenous limb. It's got to be cut off to save the body. Now I know this is hard to hear. I know know it may seem especially hard to hear because you know how easily a command like this one could be abused. I mean, how easily this could become a tool for suppressing dissent, for protecting leaders' hegemony over the community. Of course it could. Sin can spoil anything. It's in a command we ought to approach with fear and trembling. But the undeniable fact is that the command is still here. Paul says this action is necessary for the health of the church and the fruit he wants to see us bearing. The command is here and the risk is worth it because these stakes just couldn't be higher for a fruit-bearing community. I think what we're meant to see here is just how precious this is to Paul, how precious unity is to Paul. And how precious it should be to us. So how should we respond to what Paul has said here? I want to finish our time together by giving you three suggestions. Three suggestions about how we should respond to Paul telling us that we've got to avoid people who stir up division. I want to start with a a wide funnel and get more and more narrow. Start really broad how we can avoid the person who stirs up division... Big picture, zoomed out, and then slowly work us down to something that's as personal as you and me. Here's the first suggestion. How do we respond to what Paul has said about dividing from a divisive person? I think the first thing we can do is turn off divisive influences in our lives. And I, I know Paul has in mind here specific people in the church who are stirring up division. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. I know that's the main theme. But the principle is bigger than that. The same thing that makes a, a divisive church member dangerous to a local church makes divisive writers and influencers and pundits out there dangerous too. And we're all now living with an inescapable noise of a media environment that Paul just couldn't have imagined, and it's ugly out there. And that's not just because we live in a divided society full of people that are passionately committed to their causes. It's partly because there's a lot to be gained from fighting. You know, In chapter 1, Paul talked about people, false teachers who are active in their community, stirring up trouble, ruining families, he says, as doing what they're doing because of shameful gain. Because there's a living to be made in it. Stirring up trouble because of what it brought to them. Friends, it still works like that today. Division drives ad revenue. Division fuels clicks, earns viewers, Builds platforms and sells books. That shouldn't surprise us. It's a heck of a marketing strategy. But here's a good rule of thumb I realized or, or read recently from a writer I admire named Alan Jacobs. He writes this. You're wondering how to decide what to read? Here's a simple but effective device to cut down the choices significantly. Ask yourself one question. Does this writer make bank? When we hate one another. If the answer is yes. Don't read that writer. (laughs) Friends what we have here. Among us in our family of faith. Is infinitely precious. It is so far above the reach. Of that frivolous and market driven pugilism out there. We have to see it that way. We have to see this as precious to us. And then we have to let our love for one another filter what we consume online. Your investment of time and energy in online debates at the moment is serving somebody else's agenda. You're helping somebody, but it isn't us. It could be that it's distracting you from the fruitful work God has called you to. And it's not just a distraction from from real community, a community where you're needed. it, It may be even worse than that. It may be that what you're engaging with out there will bring a poison in here. So I think we ought to consider, as members of our church, who factor everything we do through our commitment to one another, we gotta think about what we consume out there like a careful mother who knows that her milk will carry something of whatever she's eating to her vulnerable child. She pays attention. She says yes to good things and no to things that aren't good. Because her child is going to feed on what she eats. Let, let, let's let our connection to one another filter what we're willing to allow into our brains and into our hearts the rest of the week first thing we can do to respond well to what Paul said about avoiding divisive people is to avoid them out there before we turn to here. Here's the second thing, second suggestion for how we can respond to what Paul has said. Confront divisiveness where you see it. Uh, The scenario that that Paul plays out uh, here in these verses begins with a warning, not with the splitting off. And if necessary, if that first warning doesn't get the job done, he says, you warn them again. You keep at it because the goal is to help the person who's being divisive. You want them back. You don't want to get rid of them. You want to restore them. You want them to be healthy and fruitful and serving the community rather than harming it. So by all means, friends, we should be regularly praying in our prayers for our church that we never have to cut off a divisive person from our community. But we also ought to realize that if the Lord chooses to answer that prayer, if he protects us from having to take that kind of action, It'll be because we had the willingness to confront divisiveness when we saw it before it got to that point. We had the willingness to, in love and grace, warn somebody. I think what we want to do, what we want to make sure of here, the way we want to grow as a community is to make sure that we're at the point where we are just super allergic to divisiveness, where our tolerance is really, really low, with the slightest whiff of it causes us to break out and to swell up or get splotchy or whatever like we, want, we want a strong allergy to any whiff of divisiveness in our community and a quick response to it when we see it where we just go right after it with grace and love where we say brother can you see where this leads sister please no. I, I know you're hurting I, I know you're invested here but, but do you see where this is going to go Do you see whom it could hurt? Where with love, we just don't let it go, but we go right after it. By all means, pray that we won't have to get to the point where we've got to cut off a divisive person. But friends, please pray also that we'll have the wisdom and courage to confront divisiveness when we need to. The only thing that will keep us from it is not love for God or love for that person and an unwillingness to, to, to say something hard to them and maybe hurt their feelings. The only thing that keeps us back from doing that work is love for ourselves. Not wanting to take on the inconvenience of it, of a hard conversation. Not wanting to risk the stability of a friendship if you have to confront someone in it. And love for ourselves as a guiding principle for this community, that's just going to produce rotten fruit. Let's really love one another and confront divisiveness where we see it. And then finally, let's just avoid being a divisive person. I mean, the separating from this divisive person that Pauls calls for we can start with ourselves right i'm just not going to be a divisive person i'm going to be super allergic to divisiveness in myself let's let's commit to relentless evaluation of our own hearts uh, pretty much as soon as zoom became part of everybody's everyday last year i started noticing articles popping up everywhere on the fact that most people most naturally just look at their own screen when they're on a zoom meeting do you do that you do don't you They were all over the place. Wired.com, why can't I stop staring at myself on Zoom? Insider.com, why you can't stop staring at yourself on Zoom? Scientific American, the weirdness of watching yourself on Zoom, and other articles on the psychological effects of it, followed by Glamour.com's reassurance, don't worry about what you look like on Zoom, because, quote, everyone else is just looking at themselves anyway. (laughs) We should bring that kind, of, that kind of relentless self-focus to this problem in our church's life and start with ourselves. It's easy to read this divisiveness and know, especially with all the divisive noise that's going out there, you've got like a list of 10 friends on Twitter that you think need to hear this text, don't you? How about we just stop looking for our friends in this text and start looking for ourselves in it? How about we start looking in our own hearts to see, am I that person? How could you know? Are you grieved or energized by controversy among Christians? There's a good question for you. Are you grieved by it or energized by it? Sometimes I fear we're itching for our chance not to compromise. Do you hope to be wrong about people that you disagree with? Would you be happy if you found out there was not a good reason to be concerned? They actually didn't think what you thought they did. A divisive person needs that difference to be there. That's part of how they justify their existence. It's being on the right side of a line that's opposite you. But a peacemaker takes other people seriously and tries to hear them on their terms, even if you have to disagree in the end. When you do disagree, do you speak of the people that you disagree with in tones of concern and compassion? Or do you speak about them with gleeful anger? Well, Consider this, friends. Is a contested issue more central to who you are than the basics of the gospel? What animates you? What fills your mind and stirs your heart and takes up your downtime? Who do you feel most connected to? Somebody who votes like you do but isn't a follower of Jesus? Or somebody who doesn't follow Jesus but tends to vote, or someone who does follow Jesus rather but tends to vote the other way? And I wonder if you're feeling any sense of conviction right now as I'm talking. If you're wondering if perhaps you've drifted toward divisiveness. I wonder if the most healthy thing wouldn't be for you to just ask a friend this afternoon to take some questions like this and answer them about you. To invite them to be part of your early warning system. How can you recognize a community of genuine Christians where God's love has worked all the way down into life Not a group of bobbleheads, but a group of transformed lives. You'll know them when the gospel is talked about relentlessly. But where doctrinal purity is not policed for every jot and tittle, where every deviance is relentlessly accounted for, but instead where the needs of others take up their time and focus, where it's the needs of others that are relentlessly noted and accounted for. A a community in which good works are there, useful, profitable, and fruitful. So let's pray together now that the Lord will make us that kind of community before we continue to sing together this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask for your help to honor you in our life together. We know that there is much in us that still resists the beautiful, fruitful influence of your Spirit, and we ask that your Spirit fight for us and against our sin. That you carry on the work of renewal, the washing of regeneration, all the way to the end, so that we love what you love, and so that we live lives that bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.